1: My family thinks I'm crazy. A podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Cause that's what I've been trying to do for the past ten years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I never been a shade, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. drum and the heart. These are humanity's oldest known musical instruments, yet none are older than the human voice. We have had a knack for music since our inception. Could the study of sound and music reveal profound and new perceptions of of the invisible aspects of our reality and man's hidden ability to engage with these unseen subtle vibratory energies? Could ancient megaliths, medieval churches, and even the pyramids all hold the same secret? This secret now revealed as the ancient language of sacred sound which also happens to be the title of our guest today's latest book that is the ancient language of sacred sound the acoustic science of the divine by david elkington who's an academic historian political consultant painter and writer specializing in egyptology archaeoacoustics Ancient languages, including Paleo Hebrew, Paleo Greek, and more. David has also written on quantum physics for science magazines and is currently heading the project on the Jordan Lead and Golden Codices with Professor Roger Webb of the Ion Beam Center University of Surrey. David has appeared on television, on shows like Ancient Mysteries, as well as lecturing at universities worldwide, including Cambridge and Oxford, among others. David believes very passionately that the sacred space was designed with specific intent in order to alter human brainwave frequencies, to broaden awareness and retain contact with Mother Earth.
2: You know, stone circles, pyramids, stupas, cathedrals. We are still connecting to the Earth Mother. And if you look carefully around you, you will see in the symbolism very much confirmation of that. When when I sort of started looking at the resonant frequencies and, you know, looking at the work of others who'd investigated this phenomenon, we found also that certain aspects of resonant vibration when presented pictorially okay it can be seen carved into the bedrock of these places professor bob john late of princeton university was doing some experimentation at Newgrange in ireland back in the early 90s and i think he was a pipe smoker and he noticed how the smoke of the pipe inside the interior Took the waveforms of the of the markings, you know, carved into the interior, zigzags and spirals. Now I took that further in my thesis, and working with um, with numerous people, but particularly a friend of mine called John Reed, we set up acoustic machinery. That then we made the the place resonate. And we then looked at it through cymatics, which is basically a membrane with sand on it that is made to vibrate to those internal frequencies. And quite often, the the waveforms will show on the sand patterns, except in this case, they all took linguistic form. So at Celtic places, we had Celtic hieroglyphs, Indian places, Indian hieroglyphs, and in the Great Pyramid, we had hieroglyphs.
1: A true pleasure to have you here. Like I said, David Elkington here on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And you're sort of, you know, based on what we just discussed, you're sort of, you know, considered crazy by some of your colleagues, right? I mean, a lot of the guys that are are pushing some of these newer theories in the realm of archaeology and and ancient science, you know, the establishment, the academia that does not like to see that kind of stuff. Has that been your experience? Have you received pushback with this particular subject? or, Or has this been an
2: agreeable field of research? Well, academe and and agreeability do not kind of uh, mix, I'm afraid to say. It's the way we would call an oxymoron. I've had pushback, and it's been a real pleasure to have that, too, because, you know, the worst thing about uh, a new theory um, is that if you you meet academic um, disinterest, then there's silence, nothing, then you know you haven't made an impact. You know it's not really that important. But I've had a lot of pushback on all of my projects, mm. and you know, I'm I'm an Anglo-Irishman. I'm I see things backwards. I'm I'm dyslexic. I have a a way of seeing things differently, and um, academia uh, doesn't like it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not skeptical of academia. Um, you know, I, I mean, a lot of the work is based upon academic research that's gone beforehand. Uh, but the, the 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 interesting point is is that in a sense, it kind of shows up mainstream academe for being too representative of the funding behind it, rather than actually looking at, at the actual um, dare I say the word, truth of, of what these places were, what they represent, and our interaction with them. So, I mean, I'll give you a distinction. Um, back in the uh, or from the age of enlightenment onwards until beginning of the 20th century, there were two forms of science you had pure science and you have applied science okay pure science was basically investigating world phenomena just for the sheer sake of it you had you know you had enough money inherited whatever and you wanted to do something you investigated that's what you did applied science is more or less about doing science for profit and we know what's we, we know who won out there's no there's really no pure science anymore well i've applied pure science in this project i wanted to kind of get to the root of why i had undergone a very profound experience inside wells cathedral in the um mid-1980s and i just went on this this eccentric if you want to call it um quest for an answer right right you know I, i i i i dived right in or as you americans say i dove right in um and uh you know, I, I I plunged deeper and deeper, and um, yeah, it was it was quite something. I tell you,
1: fantastic. So this experience you had in this cathedral, can you tell us more about the cathedral itself? Maybe the history, and and was yeah. this the first time it occurred to you that that this you know was possible? This type of feeling from a, a building.
2: Yeah, well, I'm. It was interesting, and. To, to kind of undergo these experiences, I realised latterly that you kind of have to be slightly detached from the material world as we now know it. Okay, so you've got to consider the Wells Cathedral is a Gothic cathedral built in around about the early twelve hundreds. And if you think of the period, people had no internet, no telephones, no cars, you know, little education beyond those who were fairly wealthy or members of the elite. So churches and cathedrals were built as kind of books in stone, to paraphrase St. Bernard of Clairvaux, okay? And so therefore, the overall effect upon European culture to all and sundry, to walk into a three-dimensional, four-dimensional place for the first time and see stained glass windows with the light shining through them, must have been absolutely extraordinary, okay? Okay. To us, it's like, oh, yeah, I've been there, seen it, done it, so what, you know? But to those guys, almost 1,000 years ago, it was a completely different order of, of, of experience. So these people have been pummeled into submission by their experience of life, which was very hard. Nasty, brutish, and short is how one person described evil life, um, you know? So my parallel experience to that was that I had been to art school. I'd fallen very head over heels in love. And then the affair came to an end when she said one day, that's it, I, you know, I'm off. And I was completely devastated. And um, moping around in my sort of agonized state, I found myself uh, at the end of November 1983, I think it was, in, in Wells Cathedral. And um, I, I, I was, I went down to the nave. I looked around, and I kind of then went through a side door, and I saw these extraordinary stairs that were time worn, kind of bent, and you could almost sort of feel the footfall of many tens of thousands of steps before you. You know, over eight hundred years having worn them down. And as I walked up to the the stairs to what is uh, known as the Chapter House. Where the chapter of the cathedral would meet and have their, you know, their, their cathedral meetings, and where the choir was practicing. As I got about halfway up, suddenly I was no longer me. I was no longer there. I was rooted to the spot, but I was elsewhere. I felt I was floating upwards, heavenwards, as I could hear the choir practicing for, for the Christmas Carol service the effect of the resonance in that particular place was exceedingly powerful and it, although it was a momentary experience or it certainly appeared to be i was so carried away by the timelessness of it that even within a within a you know a few microseconds perhaps i suddenly felt i'd been somewhere that was eternal and infinite i felt detached from my body It was like a near-death experience, Um, and I had one of those too. And it's like sort of whoa, what is this? And I came out of that place uh, a few minutes later, completely sort of wrecked, you know, because it it gets you emotionally, let alone spiritually. And I thought to myself, there's got to be a physical explanation for this. And I thought, right, finally, I've got something to do, something to distract my mind away from moping about this gorgeous woman who just said goodbye to me you know yeah isn't that how it always happens thank
1: goodness for the frivolity of young love because i wonder what wouldn't have been innovated without it i myself have probably a few broken relationships to blame for doing what i'm doing now so yeah i can relate i can
2: relate (laughs) i I think there's many of us actually to be honest with you you know um and it's a it's an interesting thing because in a sense the experience kind of expanded the whole idea of love and what it was into a more into both the emotional the intellectual as well as the physical and the and the psychological you know um and that's what was so interesting about the the beginning of the quest was the overwhelming nature of this it didn't happen in one aspect of my life it happened everywhere you know and so as time went on, I, I found myself finally uh, working with others to experiment with the nature of sound and its effect upon human brainwave patterns. And what I discovered was extraordinary. I mean, it really was utterly extraordinary. And it's it's a kind of a science that is yet untapped. Although I have to say... Um, you know, a lot of good American academic scientists are doing a lot of good work on this. And, you know, my praise to them for, for having the courage to pursue it because it's very profound stuff. And I think this kind of change of consciousness that seems to be happening around us now, I think, you know, is is about to, to be the prelude to discoveries about consciousness that I think will be the equivalent of the industrial revolution of two two 250 years ago.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, that's a great way to sum it up, and that's a great way to get started here, because I think the vibrational energy shift that so many spiritual people are talking about, it has an original source, and that original source, I think you've traced back with your book, and I should show the audience your book, because it's very beautiful. The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, The Acoustic Science of the Divine, that is what we're here to talk about. But, you know, it's almost like this drumbeat got started with these megalithic structures, like what we see in Stonehenge, Avebury, Glastonbury, you know. and, And that drumbeat, that rhythm was picked up by cultures across the world, and it spread into, you know not just stone structures, but great stone churches, and now maybe even some of the modern works of architecture. But where does it start? How
2: far back did you go? Starting is a very good question, which really can't be answered with any accuracy, because we simply don't know. But it happens on every continent. I mean, you've given kindly, given the credit for English places there, but there, you know, you have your own American places too. And I mean, one looks at the Cahokia mounds, you know, uh, and you think, "Gosh, the same thing must have happened there," you know. And then you go further down to Central America. You've got the Pyramid of the Sun and Moon in Mexico, and and so on and so forth, you know. But the, the, the curious thing is, is that when you look at the what we know from the archaeology of the period, it's fairly obvious that at the beginning of, of the human um, pathway to self-awareness or self-consciousness, that we emerged from the, 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 the cave-like environment, you know, to kind of look at the world around us, you know? And we kept going back to the caves, and gradually it seems we made tentative steps to finally build our own caves, which we call homes, okay? But... Even before we built our own homes, before we even thought about building shopping malls, post offices, schools and you know all of that, all of that stuff, what came first was the sacred site. And the question you've got to ask is specifically, why? Now that's what's so curious is that um, we have been reared within the embrace of Mother Earth, those famous two words, Mother Earth. Okay? Now, in mythology, she's called the Earth Mother for a reason, and that is because we share the same rhythmic vibration as the Earth. I mean, think of it in the opposite way. If we didn't, we'd be dead, you know? So basically, it's obvious that, of course, we're going to share the same rhythmic vibration. So, of course, the brain is therefore attuned to the Earth, and is attuned to, you know, particular internal spaces where we feel the earth within. Um, Poets and mystics call it the the Numen, you know, the sense of the numinous you get when you go to certain specific places. You've got this feeling that runs up the spine of something mysterious and present. And you can't actually, you know, pin it down to a few words. That's why poets write poetry they, they, they try to understand and appreciate the mystery through rhythm, which itself is a type of rhythmic vibration, okay? So to get down to the, the basics, the Earth actually resonates at approximately 32 hertz, or vibrations per second. The human brain, when in connection with the Earth, resonates at approximately 8 hertz, which is an octave of, of Earth frequency, okay? Okay. 8 plus 8 plus 8 plus 8 equals 32. Okay, so in other words, we are entangled. Now, what's interesting is when you go to these sacred sites, they were all built to within particular frequency bands that are actually connected to Earth resonance. So, in other words, you know, um, we're kind of like beginning the journey away from the caves and into our own world, but we're staying in communication with the Earth Mother, okay? So they become our umbilicus. Right. They, they, they become the, the the thing that feeds us inside the womb, okay? Now, this is interesting, because um, most sacred places have at their center um, uh, betels, or sacred stones, which are called omphalos. You have a famous one at uh, the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, okay? Omphalos means navel stone, as in umbilicus. Wow. Okay? Yeah. So we're still connected, okay? Right. So when we go to these places, be they you know stone circles, pyramids, stupas, cathedrals, we are still connecting to the Earth Mother. And if you look carefully around you, you will see in the symbolism... Very much confirmation of that, you see. Mm -hmm. So, when when I sort of started looking at the resonant frequencies and you know looking at the work of others who had investigated this phenomenon, um, we found also that certain aspects of resonant vibration, um, when presented pictorially, okay, it can be seen carved into the bedrock of these places. Um, Professor Bob John, late of uh, Princeton University, was um, doing some experimentation at um, Newgrange in Ireland back in the uh, early '90s, and I think he was a pipe smoker. And he noticed how the smoke of the pipe inside the interior took the waveforms of the of the markings, you know, carved into the interior, zigzags and spirals. Really, so I took that further in my thesis, and um I uh, working with um with numerous people, but particularly uh, a friend of mine called John Reed, um, we uh set up acoustic um, uh machinery that then we made the the place resonate, and we then looked at it through cymatics, which is basically. Um, a membrane with sound on it that is made to vibrate to those internal frequencies, and quite often the, the waveforms will show on the sound patterns, except in this case they all took linguistic form. So at, at Celtic places we had Celtic hieroglyphs, Indian places Indian hieroglyphs, and at the, in the Great Pyramid we had hieroglyphs.
1: Now... Help me visualize this. So, we have our, our membrane, our plate that's vibrating. We have sand that could be colored, but let's just imagine it's just all one color. And this sand is forming, you're saying, hieroglyphic characters
2: in that vibr while yeah. it's vibrating. Yeah, yeah. Wow. we have the Indian shape for the om, you know, that famous figure yeah. three. Oh, you yeah. Know? Wow. We had that in its full glory. I mean, it, this is not approximation; it was an ohm. Okay, yeah. we had the Celtic knot work that you see in the Book of Kells and all of that. So, um, you know, from Northern, from Ireland and from 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 Britain, we had all of that when we went to Celtic places. Um, and and this is what was so interesting, and it struck me that you know. Um, there's a critical thing that happened at some distant age in the past. Okay, it's a, a bit of a tragedy, and yet it's something that was inevitable, and that was the separation of human beings from the sight. And I'll explain this because what's happened is that if you think about these sound patterns, they're forming in the brain. Now they they actually the alphabet itself takes physical form within certain uh, aspects of the brain called neurites, okay? You can actually see the letters A, B, and C within the brain, okay? Now, obviously, that's come about after many thousands of years of, of, you know, us being exposed to these sound wave frequencies, and we have expressed them thus, okay? So... It's interesting, you know, uh, and obviously this is the phenomenon in the West. I mean, obviously in the East, where you have still got the use of glyphs and things like that, particularly I think here of Chinese and Japanese writing, um, you have, you know, a, a, a different form taking place in their brains. But if you look at the myths of these places, you'll find that you have generally a sky father who is the overall god. You have the Earth Mother, and then to complete the Trinity, we have the Son, who is the hero. And in all of these myths, it is the hero who brings language in the form of script. Okay? Now, if you therefore have the Sky Father, who is God, the Earth Mother, who is kind of like, you could say, like the Virgin Mary in Christianity, then you have the Son. The Son is the hero then the hero in, in, in those ancient mythologies was generally held to be somebody who was semi-divine. In other words, part divine, part mortal. In other words, he or she existed as individual human beings, and they were generally the king or the queen of the site or the place or the civilization. Okay, So those, those people were held to bring down script. So they were going within... Now, what's interesting about this is that in the Babylonian Enuma Elish, it, it, you have the opening of the creation myth is uh, something like Eli Nabu Shamanu. Okay? The word shaman, you know, shamanu is shaman. It means he who names. Okay, When you start to name things, you understand them. It's part of the human history aspect of things. Okay, So to name something means you've got to have the language to do it. The great invention we give ourselves credit for is when we started to write this stuff down as the alphabet, okay, named after the two first letters of the alphabet, alpha and beta in Greek, okay. So basically, the hero brings script, and it therefore must have seemed dramatically miraculous to these people that they could leave a note behind and they could deliver their thoughts to somebody else who didn't have to be there. Imagine that. You know, we're talking here about a kind of emails uh, technology be- well before computers came along, right. you know? Right. Well, I, in my I'm, lifetime, I've
1: seen that. I grew up with a house phone that we had to take off of the hook, and then by the time I was out of high school, I had a phone with a keyboard on it.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is it. I mean, you know, you can describe this as far up, but the fact of the matter is it's, you know, it's provable by, you know, history, by the physicality of the human brain, et cetera. And I think that we do uh, ancient societies and civilizations a huge disservice by dismissing them as being primitives, because let's look at the meaning of the word primitive. If I say that word to you, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? savage brute (laughs) right now then here is is i want you to give me the first thought that comes to your mind when i tell you that primitive literally means in the latin primitive okay it's a latin word it means first born wow How does that change your perception? Yeah, now I'm
1: thinking of my Catholic upbringing, the firstborn, and this sort of concept of the immaculate conception and all that.
2: (laughs) Instead of savagery and and kind of like uh, ignorance, you've suddenly gone from that to an idea or vision of innocence. Mm, Right, right. And it's when we're in the innocent state that we can absorb knowledge and wisdom in a way that we can't in other states. Oh, yeah,
1: and that's such a more appropriate understanding of that term it's it's really been inverted away from its original meaning it, you know especially here in the states we have this whole you know derogatory idea of what the native indigenous were like and and it's because of yeah. the, you know that idea there
2: it's shocking and we we need to actually go back to the drawing board in as regards our attitudes to these extraordinary people because they're retaining they are They are preserving a very ancient knowledge that we are only just now beginning to unpick to the degree where we can learn from it, you know? I mean, I think about all the environmental devastation and chaos, and suddenly, you know, we're we're, we're having to understand that these people actually got it right in the first place. I mean, I'll give you an example. Recently, um, they had terrible bushfires in Australia recently, you know, and um, the aboriginals um, turned around to the government and said, well, if you'd have allowed us to continue clearing the land to, to, to therefore you know, get rid of excess wood, etc., none of these fires would have happened to the scale that they did. Right. We've been doing this for 40,000 years. Right. And the Australian government rebuked them and said, no, no, we know better. Well, many tens of billions of Australian dollars damaged later. They're eating humble pie. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know? it's, it's the same story here
1: in the West Coast, in California and, and uh, you know, uh, Washington State, Oregon. They have the same issues with their national parks.
2: Uh, it's just ridiculous. You know, I mean, I was taught not to look down upon people. Uh, I was taught that you kind of, you're not above nature either and you're not below it. You just are it. There's a terrible, um, I hate to say it, but there is a terrible arrogance in uh, Western humanity's view of of others and of the world at large. And actually, it's one born of phenomenal insecurity. When you start attacking other cultures simply because they seem primitive, it's born of insecurity. I don't know about you, but, you know, I like to sit down and have a couple of beers with these guys and just start laughing and joking and talking about, you know, some of the extraordinary things they know, amazing people, you know? Right. And this is what we could do with more of in our present world. Agreed. Because they, they built these places, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, one of my favorite stories, it's apocryphal, but uh, Captain Cook in 17... whenever, 1760, I think it was, he lands on the south coast of Australia, and there's the Endeavour, just moored off offshore. And he looks overboard at the ship and he looks come to the coast of Australia and see these giant hopping rats, you know. So he says to two of his, uh, his crew, he said, I, well, I want you to to, to hop, get into the rowing boat, go across there. I want you to talk to the natives there, the Aborigines, and ask them what those giant hopping rats are. <laughs> so then they, they row aboard, you know, and they, they get to the coast there and they manage through sign language to ask the question, what are those giant hopping rats? To which the uh, aborigines turn around and say kangaroo. So from that day to this, they've been called kangaroos. Do you know what kangaroo means in aboriginal? Giant hopping rat? <laughs> it, means, it means I don't know.
1: Really? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Oh, goodness. Tara, my girlfriend's listening over there. Have you heard that? She's been to Australia before. Did you hear that story? Never heard that story.
2: Okay, wow. <laughs> you no, know, it's it's what's interesting is that um, again another Western um, um, habit is we use words so often we take them for granted, but look in an English dictionary and look at the meanings of those words and where they come from. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, would the pe- word experience um, comes from the Latin expirari which means from out of the spirit. Wow. Okay? But that's just one example of
1: many thousands, okay? Yeah, I could give you an example. I don't know how many people would uh, spend as much money on their home as they do if they knew what mortgage really meant.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, right. I mean, this is, a, this is a prime example, you see. It's kind of like, um, you know, we've got this tool. It's a deeply ancient, archaic tool and a devastatingly powerful one, too. And we little understand exactly what it is. Mm. Um, You you start looking at poetry, start reciting, start to sing it, start to sing on the whole, and start to use your voice. Um, I say to people uh, when I'm giving talks occasionally, go to a mirror, open your mouth and look at the back of your throat. If you look at your throat, you'll see two arches. Okay, and don't think McDonald's. Um, think, <laughs> think, think, um, Gothic cathedrals. Okay, you've got a, a, a direct reflection of the two, and there were the cathedrals built as structures for the human voice. Wow. Okay, yeah. if you go into a cathedral on a particular day of solstice and equinox, one of the saints' feast days. Christmas time, you will, if you allow yourself for it to happen, you will have your brain transformed by the experience of being hit by all of those rhythmic vibrations. They will drive down brainwave frequency to its everyday frequency of, of around about 18 to 31 hertz. They will plunge all the way down to eight and even lower to four vibrations per second. And what that does. It's like a it's like dropping a, a little bit of oil onto a puddle of water. Suddenly you just see it expand. Vom. You know, and that's what's happening to your consciousness when you go through this experience. You're you're going from thinking directly about one thing in one straight line to suddenly being everywhere at once. And that's why they say if you have a problem, you should sleep on it. Okay? Because when you go into sleep and come out of sleep, you go through an alpha pattern which is a very low frequency of the brain. And in that frequency, your mind makes connections to other areas, both within your life and beyond, which provide you with answers. Because we are very, very good in the modern world of not making connections. Right. Now, this alpha wave brain frequency, that's
1: exactly what's inspired when you enter into one of these sacred sites,
2: am I correct? Yeah, when you undergo the full ritual as it's as, as what these places were built for, that's exactly what will happen. And so, of course, that, you know, that engenders so much else within you. It changes your consciousness. It makes you much more open to the world about you in a way that is very, very hidden. And that's what's so profound. It, it connects to you in a way that you can't possibly get that treat, you know, in, in modern life. Unless you're you know, you've got a conscious machine that you can plug yourself into to do it. But I can tell you one thing, it's better than taking drugs. Right. Yeah. Now when it comes to our, our the
1: more ancient sites, you said that there's a sort of like frequency inherent in these places and you can actually measure the cymatics and see that there are different sounds being broadcasts so to speak is this like vinyl where you know people have impressed this energy onto the place over time or is it more like a music box where they built it to play this certain frequency
2: that's a a, that's a a, a, that's a double question that requires an equal double answer and i'm going to do that because you've raised a very very interesting point that's in the book um the places themselves are built to to within specific um you know wave band frequencies definitely um and that's what you know happens to us collectively when we go into them. Um, so you have to be conscious of that. Some of them have much more profound um, musical and resonant uh, properties than others, simply because of the expertise of the builders. Um, but to go to the second part of your question about do we leave traces behind, the answer to that is very definitely yes. There is a railway bridge in the north of England where every uh, autumn time you hear the sound of the trains going over it, um, you know, and it's quite interesting because the railway bridge has been out of operation for over 60 years. Wow. wow. <laughs> so that that's the atmospheric pressure, you know, crushing or, or pressurising the quartz of which the, the building is made and releasing the sound. I mean... If you've got one of the old vinyl record players, you'll see a, a diamond or a sapphire in the needle, okay? It helps to play the record. Or if you've got um, a gas oven and you, you need to light it with a spark, you can sometimes get we'll see these. We have them over here in Europe. Um, you have these kind of lighters where you press the button and it, it actually puts a p- two pieces of quartz under pressure. And the friction between them Creates a blue spark that lights your gas oven. It's the same principle with with these sound vibrations. And there was another one, um, which I've got in the book. Um, This one is great. I love this one. Um, A a, a chap called, um, uh, well, a scientist uh, in in sort of acoustics got called into a local business premises. It was only built about sort of uh, 20, 30 years ago. So, you know, it's not old and it's very modern. But the uh staff would go nowhere near the 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 restaurant there where you know the workers would go and have their cups of tea and God knows what else. Um and he said, Well why? he said, Because they they they're saying there's a ghost there. And he thought, Oh gosh, you know, load of nonsense. And so he went down to the into the the canteen, as we call it, and uh he sat there and he was reading the newspaper. And um he suddenly said he felt this terrible ch- chilling of the spine the tingling of the spine and that he broke out into a cold sweat and as he put the newspaper down slowly there she was right in front of him and he he, he was he said it was it was just one of the most terrifying experiences he ever had now he's also a fencer he 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 has a, he had an neppe with him you know a sword and he noticed he'd put this thing on the table and he 'd noticed that the Epe was vibrating rhythmically slightly, okay, so it gave him an idea um, and they were able to get the details of this lady because um, he said she was very Victorian in aspect, and they found out who she was and when she died approximately one hundred and fifty years beforehand okay now the the day... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, happy birthday! <laughs> no, but but he noticed with the épe vibrating that therefore it was actually a, a standing wave pattern. So in other words, there had to be something else vibrating in the room at the same frequency. And going over to the wall, he saw an extractor fan that was loose on one screw, and it was vibrating at precisely the same frequency. So it was creating what we call a standing waveform. Which is a pressure wave, which was obviously putting the table, which was an antique, under pressure and therefore releasing its memory. Incredible. Wow.
1: We got an so, antique chair over there, Tara. What do you say? We gotta <laughs> we gotta do an experiment. <laughs> see what's
2: trapped inside of it. <laughs> well, again, you know, this is what this is what's so interesting about sound. It's we know so little about the applications for it, and yet this is the, the new technology, you know. Um, Sound lasers, called Césars, are much more accurate and much more powerful than ordinary light lasers. You know, they are very profound. Because, of course, light itself is also rhythmic vibration. Well, and, and this sort of gives me a little bit of a segue
1: here, because something that I've heard... I don't remember if it was Welsh or Celtic, but there's a folktale that says that there were as many trees for each vowel of the language, and each piece of wood determined the tone that became the language. And if you look at a tree, what is it? It's, it's a, reaching out to grab the light, and then it solidifies into this Thing that falls off, and we can go and knock it, and makes a particular sound that became, you know, the letter D or whatever. Right? That is, have you heard this before?
2: Yeah, the the, the alphabet you're referring to is the is the Celtic Ogham um, a tree alphabet called the right. Bethluin Nuon after the first uh, wow. letters. You know, but if you go you go to the Bible, you can go to the Old Testament, you can see King David hearing the voice of God through the rustling of the leaves in the trees. Hmm. You know, it, it runs across the world, you know this whole this whole idea because again uh, the word spirit has three meanings in one. it means wind, breath, air. Okay, So suddenly it widens your idea as to what the concept of God is in that sense, you know it, it's, it's a curious one that um, you know and and it, it's fascinating and I mean how interesting that in the Celtic legend, you have a god called Esus who was crucified on a tree. You know, right. so again, you've got this this hero legend, uh, and it's the hero who brings who brings script. I mean, in John's gospel, Jesus is called the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. So again, it's all about language. It's about script. It's about the miracle of communication. You know, so communication. From communication, we go to communion, because we go into these places, we open up to them on a resonant level, and we commune with that sense of presence that we some of us call God, others others of us call God the divine, and others you know we might we might call it uh, consciousness, whatever. You know, to me, God is consciousness. It's about it's about you know the whole idea of us rising to a higher level than our material selves. You know? Right. It's about reaching out to, to, to feminine wisdom. The hero is always the son of wisdom, and wisdom is always the earth. Now, the temple becomes sort of like
1: the body of the divine feminine in this case then, right? Because we're using the yeah. finer aspects of the earth. Does this play into this, you know, very seemingly controversial as far as history is concerned, the Temple of Solomon, right? It's very sought after, and many different yeah. people have fought over yeah. it. Would this be a divine feminine? Because I've read it to be like made in the proportions of a man. Is this a maybe like an inversion of the the real truth of the temple?
2: I think you'll find that the the real understanding of that is that the temple is the divine feminine, most surely in these legends the hero is always the son of wisdom so he therefore he is born from wisdom herself so it's the temple of man because he has been reborn within the temple and as i said if you go into these places no matter you know where these places are across the world and no matter what the religion is or if there are any at all if you go through the experience you you do kind of have a kind of a rebirth experience my experience at wells cathedral was one of rebirth and I don't mean rebirth in terms of the infantile sense, but rebirth into a kind of a new awareness, you know? And I mean, that's what all the Eleusinian mysteries were in ancient Greece that were eventually banned by the early Christians. You know, It was all about being reborn in the darkness of, of, of the building so that you would undergo a kind of mystical death. That when you came out of this situation, you were no longer afraid of death for real, Because you had a wider, greater sense of who you were and your role within, you know, the world about you and beyond you. Right. I mean, we are living in a, you know, a world that is obsessed with a fear of death. And yet, you know, um, I've had a near-death experience. I have a collapsed thyroid gland. So um, I went into a coma uh, 30 odd years ago and, and died for a short while. Um, and I have to say, it's an experience I thoroughly recommend, um, um, you know, because came away from it with a great sense of, wow, that was so like my experience with resonance at World Cathedral. Really? You know?
1: Wow. Yeah. Can yeah, you tell yeah, us yeah. a little
2: bit more about
1: this? What exactly happened? You, you had a, a health scare? Did you lose consciousness immediately?
2: Were you in the, the hospital? Also, I was in a coma for a couple of weeks. Oh, wow. Um, and I went up the, you know, the, the the tunnel and I got pulled out by this arm that seemed to be carved out of living divine light. But it's like being in a well, you know, you could see the waters above you, you could see the the sun shining on it, and the the, the arm pulled me out. But when I got to the other side, um I was everywhere at once. It was really weird. It was like being in a painting by J. M. W. Turner in his late phase, you know, it was like everything was very diffuse and it was like sort of it was just it was just uh, simply staggering, really and um, and I didn't want to come back. That's the other thing i I, I realized too. I just did not want to come back. Um, I felt as if I was completely enshrouded by an overwhelming, infinite, totally all-embracing sense of love, um, and it was very profound. Um, And i was given a choice as to whether i wanted to come back or not and for some reason i decided i would boy do i regret that glad (laughs) you did because here we are getting this
1: confirmation from you i mean who better to have an experience like that than someone who's studying the nature of these sacred sites because i imagine in in ancient times if you were to die and come back and you resurfaced in the temple you might regret coming back but you'd have tremendous insight
2: to share with with your you know family and friends right yes and no because the the problem is of course is that when you go to such places words fall short Mm. you know words are very much an earthly thing and how do you how do you express such a thing which is why we come back to poetry and mysticism and right. liturgy, because it, it, it explores and tries to explain the sheer depth of mystery, mm. ultimately fails, because one man's truth is another man's poison. <laughs> well, and, yeah. and that seems to be the, the,
1: the error, is that man assumes that Because he experienced this, he can now build something to help others experience this. Because it goes beyond words. You can't speak what your experience was. You have to find a way to give that person an experience for themselves.
2: But how could you ever confirm it's the same as yours? There's a great joke told by Bob Hope many years ago of a man standing in a puddle that goes up to his knees and now up to his waist and a boat comes by. The man in the boat says, get in, it's going to get worse. And the guy says, no, leave me alone. I believe God's going to personally intervene and save me. The boat goes off, the water goes up to the man's neck and a helicopter comes by. The pilot says, get in. The guy says, no, 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 leave me. I believe in God. He's going to personally intervene and save me. Helicopter goes away. The water goes over the man's head. He drowns. One day he's walking through the garden of heaven and he sees God and he goes up to God and says, well, what happened? And God said, well, I, I don't know. I sent a boat and a helicopter. <laughs> you know? Right. So that that's the problem we have here. It's imparting that sense of your, your faith uh, with your sense of rationality. But in a sense, um, you've got to kind of extend your idea of what logic is. We use logic all too often to limit our experience of the world around us. We should actually be trying to expand our logic, you know, but we're frightened. We kind of use it like a comfort blanket, okay? And too often we dismiss that, which we know little of. And, you know, that's a foolish way to, to, to behave. We should be more in awe and wonderment about that which we do not know, because, it intrigues the human mind. It intrigues our sense of curiosity. It also intrigues our sense of compassion. You know? And that's what these, these, these religions at these extraordinary sites were about. That's why they sang. These places were meant to be sung in. They were alive through song and through music and through expression of that. Okay? So that permanently you could go in there, permanently you could be you could be altered in your mind state, and you would come away with a sense of the mysterious and the intriguing idea of trying to explain it to somebody else. Because you could be arm in arm with your, your, you know, your lady love in the same, in a room, going through the same experience, but you would both express it in very different ways. You know. Truly, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Now. Where can we find this experience today? I mean, it seems like at least it, where I where I am, it's been sort of muted. Maybe some of the cathedrals in New York City could offer the the acoustics, but I don't know if if they're being you know fully taken advantage of.
2: No, I mean it's quite depressing to um, in in the UK at the moment. You go into churches, and quite often um, because the churches have become. Frankly, as organizations have become quite ignorant of the history of their buildings and their places and the sites upon which they were built by the way, that's also an important point because quite often you'd have um you know elements of power that would rise up through the surface you know right. you'd have water flowing underneath, and of course, where water is, you would have a, a an electrical charge from that water because water spins you see and anything that spins gives off a charge, so that would have aided the the power of the place. Right, right. Course, I... tell, that, tell that to a modern vicar in <laughs> UK, and they dismiss it as paganism. Right, and, uh, and you just want to kind of <laughs> roam, really, you know. And you see them coming down from the pews, having giving giving their lectures, wearing Bluetooths and microphones. <laughs> when these places are built to the power of the human voice, for goodness' sake, you know. Oh, oh it's depressing. I can't wow. tell you. But, yeah. but however. One thing that is strong throughout Europe, including the UK, is we still have cathedral choirs. And they know how to master these places wonderfully well. So if anybody wants to share the experience, just go and look up anything, any medieval choral music sung in Gothic cathedrals. I can recommend John Rutter, R-U-T-T-E-R, um, and the Cambridge Choir, we quite often sing at the Lady Chapel of Ely Cathedral, England, mm. and the music is just divine in every sense of the word. You don't have to be a Christian to listen to it; you can be from any faith or none, and it will still grab you. It is just incredible. Oh yeah, wow! I recommend particularly um, uh, "Fairies to Heaven" and uh, it's a CD he did all oh, about twenty odd, thirty odd years ago. It's it's wonderful. It's a glory. Don't just listen to the medieval music itself online. Make sure it's being sung in a cathedral. Mm. And then just, you know, just zoom in, just zone in, tune out and tune in, <laughs> you know, yeah. because it will help you. I mean, it lowers blood pressure. It's It helps your brain to think more widely, helps you to relax, helps to solve problems in the sense of the state you're in. And... You know, I, I, I describe in the book as well. Um, a lady uh, had taken up a new role as an infant school teacher, and um, her, her her class were very unruly, very misbehaved. You know, kids will be kids, will not they? Eh? And uh, she was kind of at the end of her tether. And uh, one 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 uh, one day, she uh, <clears throat> she decided to take a car and fill up some petrol. And while she was in the shop at the garage. She saw some CDs, so she pulled out one on Mozart. Took it back to the classroom. She put it on the CD player. She put her feet on the on the table, put her chair back, and she just sat there with closed eyes and listened to the clarinet quintet. Okay. And then she opened her eyes. She doesn't know how long she'd been listening for, but there in front of her was her class, absolutely silent, absolutely focused upon the music no rowdiness no noise no shouting no arguing mm. absolutely caught by the music yeah wow that's the power of these things
1: you know yeah no it, it makes you wonder why they play such agitating music in public or right? <laughs> a lot of places you know it's it's yeah it's, they could absolutely. be playing beautiful music now i wanted to ask you this And I appreciate you recommending that. I'm sure it'll take me a while, but I'll find that and link it in the episode description for the audience. But I wanted to ask you, you know, it doesn't seem like the cathedrals, like this type of thinking and pure science was invested in just the cathedrals. Is it true that, you know, a couple thousand years ago, they would build the majority of their buildings this way, taking... The acoustics in mind and into account, you know, something like a a municipal building or a home or you know something that didn't have a direct spiritual context. Would they have wasted or, or spent resources on that, or was it purely focused in in spiritual centers? This type of
2: building? well, you have to first of all look at the 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 difference today between religion and science. There's very much a difference, okay, but in ages past, the two were the same. OK, um, I've been reading a book recently on the Phoenician um, solar cult going back to 3000 BC. And the language described by some of the Phoenicians uh, and, and captured by later Greek classical writers is profoundly scientific in terms of the language used. It's really remarkable. So you can see that science emerged from religion. And again, that's a tragedy, you know, um, alchemy which is a a very early form of science, was the earliest form of investigations into the the physical aspect of spirituality and and religion, if you like. Religion is about the doctrine and keeping people within it. Science is about the investigations that that, have got us to the world where we are today. But go back uh, to the medieval period, and then beyond that, the two are the same. So... At the beginning of, of civilization, it seems like we were kind of already programmed to build these places. You know, we kind of... Um, well, we, we didn't have, you know, acoustic power meters and tape measures and say, oh, this is how we're going to build it, because we were just primitives. We were first born. So we had that sense of innocence that kind of worked with what we sensed of the Earth in communication with our hearts and our brains, to build these profoundly important places that reflected the Earth's acoustical properties so profoundly well and accurately. So it's almost as if the it was within us, you know? And at Newgrange in Ireland, which goes back to 3,500 BC at the latest count, you've got layers uh, of, of organic and inorganic rock And on the interior, which is very powerful, um, powerful acoustically speaking, you've got different coloured rocks, you know, blue and white, etc. Each has its own acoustic property. the 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 fact that you've got these layers is a bit like modern speakers. You know, you've got you've got the ability to have stone that absorbs a certain amount of the acoustics, so that the, the 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 acoustics needed. The you know the earth level vibrations are reflected back infinitely within the, the the chambers themselves. So this whole idea of sound is like sort of, yeah, we were born with it, you know. It's there in the brain anyway. The brain brain is a is a sound chamber in itself. So what we're inventing on the outside is reflected on the inside. I mean, you've just said it yourself with the temples actually <clears throat> reflecting the form of a human being. Okay? So it's not as if we've done it, as it were, um, objectively on purpose. We've done it subjectively, without purpose. We couldn't help ourselves. Right. You know? right. Well, and one thing that comes to mind,
1: especially when you were mentioning cymatics and how it could relate to architecture, is these... What are generally known as star forts, they have a variety of different names, but they seem to have a very, you know, interesting pattern. And, you know, people speculate that there was a time when these cities were taking into account a lot of the, the sacred sciences that we're discussing here.
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, we as humans have um, abilities um, way beyond what we would normally think for a, for a normal human being. Um, You know, and we have profound um, psychic abilities, to use a word that's forbidden by science these days. But again, it's all a part of consciousness, you know. Um, It's like sort of, you've got to imagine a glass of water that's, that's half full, okay? The skin on the water, the surface of it, okay, is the dividing line between the fullness below and the emptiness above, okay? But that surface is also human consciousness which reflects that which is within and that which is outside okay so everything is a reflection of everything else I mean even our so-called unique uh, ability to invent cars well cars look astonishing like like beetles and insects don't they you know I was reflecting on this today um, I was using the subway in London you know and um as the train, I missed a train, and as it disappeared down the tunnel, I thought, "My God, it looks like a, a maggot in an apple." <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, it's like when when students graduate from university, they wear their black robes, you know, but they're like ants flying the nest.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right, they get wings. <laughs> yeah, we think we're unique, but actually, if you think about it and look at nature, a wide nature, we're reflecting it the whole time. Right, you know. so 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 in terms of building the sound technology of these places there's your answer Mm. you know Mm -hmm.
1: yeah wow now when it comes to the more you know speculative researchers we hear theories of you know aliens building these things and i've generally never really fallen into resonance with those theories i've Tend to always thought that you know humans maybe could have had some more advanced capabilities than we do now. In the past, what do you say to those theories? Do you put much stock into the ideas that extraterrestrials were helping early man do some of this stuff, or do you think this is just the course of our
2: progress as human beings? I think it's a bit of both. To be honest with you, mm-hmm. um, I have to be honest with you. I, I'm. Uh... I think that these these um beings that we are obviously seeing and experiencing an awful lot of are uh, a part of earth consciousness. I believe that profoundly that our consciousness is far deeper than we have actually um come to realize um and i i I believe profoundly that the these the, these beings that today we call aliens a thousand years ago we called it angels. Um now it's interesting because the um I think that the word alien is actually um because I'm dyslexic, I can see this, okay? So you're gonna love this. The sixteenth letter of the Hebrew, Phoenician, and ancient Egyptian alphabets is the letter O. And it's it's represented of the pineal band, which is between your eyes going back an inch back into your your brain the pineal gland if you actually uh, stimulate it is the one that gives you your sense of hallucinations and you know really heightens your senses you know it's the one that gives you the surreal experiences of life okay it's the one that can be stimulated by by certain mild drugs like marijuana and things like that okay so it, it kind of progresses your psychic ability okay but the letter the name of the letter o the 16th letter of the Hebrew Phoenician and Egyptian alphabets was L I N it's an inversion of alien so in other words aliens come from within right wow
0: okay
2: yeah. so so what you're looking at again is subjective and we've given it that name but we're too busy looking out there we should be looking inside mm Right. Okay? Right. And, you know, I, I think that these beings, let's call them that, have got a very important message for us, which we should listen to. Um, and, you know, I profoundly believe that we should be more compassionate towards other forms of life. And we, we should stop being so egotistical about ourselves, you know, mm. because other forms of life also have their role to play and they've got a lot to offer us you know
1: mm, agreed anybody
2: who's ever kept animals will know what i mean
1: you know yeah yeah agreed and and i might have misspoke there but i wasn't suggesting that aliens uh didn't exist or or such le- i just oh I, dear, Jeff, I
2: didn't take it like that okay at all. no I, mean, I just i, I just you
1: know? i've never you know there the idea that aliens built the pyramids by themselves or built any megalithic structure without our our interaction has always seemed a little far-fetched to me. And I don't, you know, I guess why I bring it up is not to, you know, correct myself or anything or over-acknowledge this point. But I'm curious, you know, a lot of people think maybe these megalithic stones were vibrated into place using some sort of very high frequency sound or low frequency sound that would possibly be able to levitate these things. I mean, we have the the more recent case of Coral Castle where this Ed Lee Scanhill, you know, built the Coral Castle using a mysterious little black box that he propped up on a a stick there. So, I guess my question is, do you think acoustics or vibration could have been used to build these? large structures that we see around the
2: ancient world? Yeah, I do. Um, but again, I have a different take on it because I think that it was the human beings themselves who were actually affected by this mm. that allowed then allowed them to use those properties ah. to remove these things. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um there's been there have been many car accidents uh, in the world unfortunately but you know in one I, I, I know of, and I know a couple of dozen cases of this, it, easy. A car fell, it, it, it sort of rolled into a ditch. But the lady had to, her two young children in the back seat, okay? In a moment of desperation and panic, she was in the middle of nowhere, she literally lifted that car enough, one just over a ton in weight, okay, to get access to the door to get her children out. Wow! (laughs) Now that's that's just one example among many. Okay, about what you can do when you release endorphins that can really suddenly change your whole physicality. Okay, so change the the person, you can change the site. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's it's we're we're
1: not thinking of ourselves in the equation as humans. We're trying to like logically: what device did they use? What energy force did they use? What if we were the force? What
2: if we were the device? Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a party trick, isn't there, where you can you get people to somebody sat down uh, on a chair, and you put your everybody's asked to to put their fingers under the 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 um, armpits, and then between the crux of their knees, and attempt to lift the guy, and of course it's impossible. Okay, but then everybody then is has to place their hands equally in a pile above his head without touching, and try and push down. Okay, then immediately you put your fingers back to where they were, and you can lift the guy up, no problem at all. You know, and I'm amazed that scientists haven't actually looked at that uh, much more deeply in terms of. You know, what is the mystery here? How is it that you can lift that guy up? I mean, I've done it myself. Yeah, I've never seen that take place, but I'm
1: excited to go to a party to try
2: it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a force around us. I mean, we are surrounded by a massive bioelectric force field. I mean, it can be felt. You can measure it now, you
1: know?
2: Mm -hmm. Um, If you've got a computer and you you work on it consistently, get yourself a nice large chunk of quartz because it will help to actually um, take away some of the extra, um, yeah, electrical stimulation. Um, if you put a, a, a piece of quartz next to a window, okay, and then below them grow a daffodil bulb or something like that, you know, the daffodil bulb will grow towards the quartz, not to the window. Wow. Okay. Because quartz is amazing stuff, and we build these monuments with it, you know? Yeah. So so there's another thing there, you know, that, that you've got to take into, into account, you know?
1: Mm.
2: Now, um, it, it's the materials. And don't forget that we, too, have got, you know, bits of earth mineral within us, you know, from from the earth we come back to the earth we will go. Um, in, the, in the ethmoid bone, which, again, is not far from the pineal band, the bridge of the nose, going back a bit, there's a tiny piece of magnetite. Okay, it gives us our sense of direction. Okay, uh, my idea was that um, um, it's in. I think I think I put it in the back of the book. Um, is that I couldn't work out um, in my in my earlier career as a as an independent Egyptologist, um, I couldn't work out why mummies had their brains pierced because. If you mummify a body uh, and it's going to be lying down in a sarcophagus for a thousand years or so, um, then the, the the brain is largely just going to reduce to about two tablespoons of a, a liquor, okay? And it's just going to be like a puddle in the back of the back of the 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 the, 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 the head, the skull. So why did the Egyptians insist upon taking a great big spike? shoving it up the nose, breaking into the brain, and then pulling it out. bit gruesome, I know, but I thought your viewers might like a bit of horror, you know. Um, <laughs> spice things up, eh? <laughs> I reckon it was because they were trying not to so much to extract the brain, but to remove the piece of magnetite, thus releasing the spirit from earthly control. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense, you know? When I go next time around, I'm definitely going to get somebody to ram a spike up my nose. Because <laughs> <laughs> this magnetite
1: would have a magnetic relationship between you and the Earth that, you know, yeah, you yeah, sever that and it. you're
2: free. Yeah, wow. yeah, that's it, you know. Um, yeah. I, 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 it makes sense to me. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, let's 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 be a bit unscientific in the modern sense of the word and say, well, you know, are we really just stuck here on earth can we possibly in phases of consciousness survive death and go elsewhere you know i mean we really should be humble enough to think to say that we really don't know but it's we're having a great great fun trying to find out Mm. yeah i would i would
1: say we're we're pretty happy with thinking that it's possible you know whether or not science will be happy with that I don't really mind. but
2: I know, think science is going to go through enormous change in the next 10, 20 years or so. And yeah. I think the, the new science of consciousness, I think we're going to learn a huge amount. And I think that actually we're going to really, really rock and roll. Um, you know, I think we're going to move away from the old archetypes of of just machinery, machinery, machinery. And, you know, the whole artificial intelligence thing, I mean, I don't know why they're building artificial intelligence when all you've got to do is look in the British Houses of Parliament and Congress in these states, and there's plenty of it there, isn't there? You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but joking apart, you know, the whole idea that we're trying to build something that's intelligent when we ourselves are so lacking in in emotional intelligence, mm. kind of like, I don't know. I just find the whole thing a bit horrifying really, you know? Yeah. I can't help thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger when 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 <laughs> we, we you know we 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 discuss these things, you know? Yeah, no, I'm right
1: there with you. I think most of the audience is, and and that's why I've seen a resurgence of people wanting to get back out into nature, get back yeah. out into communion communion with these forces. And you know, there are some really interesting megalithic sites that are unrecognized over here in New England that I'm curious, you know, maybe you have some thoughts about. I was just talking to my grandfather the other day, and coincidentally enough, his sister-in-law owns a piece of property where this stone chamber was built by either colonists or Native Americans. And There are a few of these stone chambers around New England. There's hundreds of them, but some of them are aligned to certain days of the year, the equinox, of course, so that there's a little port where the sun comes through. And it's really interesting to think that the early colonists, their first instinct wasn't to blame the Native Americans for building these. They gave the credit to the Druids my grandfather, who isn't exactly a history buff, he sort of scratched his head and said to me, Yeah, Mark, somebody named the Druids put that together. I don't know if that's some Native American group or not. I'm like, Papa... The Druids are from the British Isles. They're they're from ancient times. What are you talking about? So, I guess my question to you is: Do you think that's possible that these people could have came across the the ocean and and built similar sites over here in in
2: the United States? Yes, I've I've no objection to it personally, and I think there's plenty of evidence for it. Right. Um, you know, we know that Columbus did not discover America. He merely rediscovered what had already been. You know, uh, known of for, for hundreds if not thousands of years before him. Right. Um, we know an Irish state called saint called St Brendan who, in around about the 700s, made it to America. Um, the Mandean tribe of, of Native Americans still speak his language. They still have Welsh words in their language. You know. Mm. Um, so that's just one of, of many examples. But by the same token, I think that there's also a natural inclination to build these things wherever you are. I think people are listening to Earth Resonance and just building them um, because it seems to make sense to them. It seems to be a, a natural human um, a, um, achievement, accomplishment, right. urge, you know? Well, and, and before when you mentioned the
1: umbilical or the umphalos, that, you know, the umbilical mm. nature of these stones, it reminded me of what we see a lot around here, which are stone cairns. And these yeah, big, yeah. tall piles of stone. And I guess the, the lore is that as a you know, native was walking by, he'd toss a stone onto the pile and you know, years go by
2: and pretty soon you got a big tower in the middle of the forest. Well, these things occur all over the planet, because of course they're rudimentary pyramids. Mm. Um, in Ireland you've got the same cairns as well, and they're very sacred places and often to be found on the top of um, sacred mountains, you know, Mm. because pyramids are more or less sort of, you know, man-made mountains, as it were. And again, that same same thing, that same pattern worldwide of pyramids. You know, if I say pyramids, we think of Egypt and central Mexico, but there are pyramids on the Canary Islands. Um, There are pyramids in China. There are pyramids, you know, in Africa. Um, They're being found all over the place now. Um, and they seem to kind of correlate with the whole idea of the hero uh, at the place, the the same resonances, the same mythologies, the same aims in the myth- in the mythology. It's like, yeah, there's a message here, you know, and mm. um, we're kind of responding to it. Um, do you know what the word myth means? Please tell us. No, I don't. Okay, in Greek. Okay. Myth is spelt with an extra three letters, E I N. So it's mythine. Okay. And it means literally that which is spoken. Okay. Yeah. So the shaman who names things and is to be found in myth, because myth is that which is spoken, it's the vocalization of rhythmic vibration. Yeah. And of course, from the word myth, we have mystery, (laughs) you know?
1: Right, right. Yeah this is really
2: amazing stuff. There's a whole
1: technology here, you know. Well, and you know, as an ad hoc etymologist over here, I've found so many interesting, you know, root words that, you know, have been completely lost, you know, especially when you get into toponyms, you can find so much about a place just by analyzing why it was named what it was named. And on the yeah. point of a pyramid, that would be what? The the median of fire or or mountain of
2: fire, right? That's sort of the meaning of Absolutely. (laughs) Totally, yeah. I mean, you know, this is what's so extraordinary. Um, The Great Pyramid of Giza was called, um, from its inception, the place of the ascension. Wow. You know? Um, And it's like, yeah, okay, it's fine. It's the sun. It's the, you know, it's a kind of a a concretized sun's rays, as it were. Mm. You go into the pyramid and my goodness me, what an astonishing place. It's the only pyramid in Egypt where the the internal chambers are above ground, okay? And one thing I discovered um, early on, um, if you look at the uh, Egyptian Book of the Dead, which speaks of the pyramid, of its building and its purpose, prayer number, I think, 632, talks about looking at the pyramid towards the east as the sun rises. So I took a, an internal, I took a, a, um, a, a clear view on a model of the pyramid and turned it to the east. And all of the chambers suddenly come together to give you the mummified outline of Osiris. Wow. It's really remarkable. Yeah. So it's he who is ascending within it. Now, the interesting thing is, the pyramid, was they weren't called pyramids in Egypt, they were called the myrrh. M-E-R, which is part of the name of Isis. Isis' name is actually a Greek translation, okay, of her original name of Ast, which was also known as Mer, or Mary, meaning the beloved. So she's giving birth to the divine child. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> really extraordinary stuff. Yeah? And, and, and where? what city do you find the pyramid in? the Egyptian capital Cairo Cairo thank you I'm just going to say
1: every city but that <laughs> Cairo
2: okay. right okay in the uh, early 300s AD the famous Roman emperor Constantine okay had his famous vision um, before the battle of the Milvian Bridge against um, his co-emperor Maxentius okay and he went on to win the battle and therefore to then issue the edict of toleration which meant that the Roman Empire became Christian, okay? The sign that Constantine saw was the the sign, apparently, of Christianity, although some dispute this. It was called the Rho. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) How how many more
1: correlations
2: can we get? Yeah,
1: I mean, geez, this is astounding stuff. I, I don't quite know how to follow up if this was a tennis match it'd be over you'd be the victor <laughs> but, you know the pyramids i was gonna try to bring this point up when you take a pendulum over uh let's say just a model pyramid you mm. you see some really strange things you know for the most part you know a pendulum will swing clockwise and you put it over a pyramid and it starts to rapidly spin counterclockwise very fast does this have a sort of energetic or acoustic quality that's causing this what what have
2: you looked into this i have looked into it a bit i must admit it's all it's always off the scale it's really weird i must admit i can't explain it any more than that You know, pyramids themselves, of course, are one of the platonic um, solids. And often you'll see, you know, crystals in the shape of of pyramids in that way. So there are obviously extraordinary properties here that, again, need to be investigated properly by science and open-mindedly by science as well, you know, because it is astonishing. I mean, I heard um, a lecture on um, the the, the theory of the Big Bang um, some years ago and um it's by a very eminent scientist i can't tell you his name it's gone out of my head for the moment but he he, he estimated that i think it was um uh one to the power of minus 30 seconds after the big bang the universe was pyramidal in shape it was a tetrahedron you know yeah this is now you know you're talking here about crystalline solids you're talking about the 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 birth of crystals, literally, everything is crystalline in, in terms of mass, there's got to be something there. And um, the blood flow, you know, people think, oh, your, your blood just flows along the veins. but We don't look at it and think of it on, a, on a, um, a microscopic scale. When you're looking at blood, you're literally looking at a river of water, little rivulets that are spinning and giving off a charge. And blood in crystalline form is pyramidal. Really? Okay, yeah. So, so yeah, you, you, there's there's definitely something to it for sure. <laughs> this urge to construct pyramids is definitely something that reflects nature and reflects a very, very much greater mystery, definitely. Yeah, and it's astounding how you're able to just point
1: out the fractal holographic. I mean, it's easy once you get the hang of it. I'm sure, but you you clearly have been studying this stuff for a long time, David, because you're just you're you're, you're full of examples. I love it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm just really interested, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm just really, really curious. I want to know. Right. Um, and I don't care where I have to go. I just want to make sure that. I can trust what I find out, you know, right so I, I say to your listeners, don't take everything on spec, Find out for yourself and find out from as many sources as you can well and and that being mm-hmm.
1: said, I, I think you're a tremendous source of information, but are, are there any things that you've come across that you're still scratching your head over, any mysteries that you've you've
2: faced that you're still working on? Yeah, there's, no. I, I, there's loads, you know, um, and I'm determined to answer all of them. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of I'm working at the moment on the the uh, the unknown um, Phoenician solar theology, um, which is really really fascinating. Absolutely, preserved yeah. um, in small part by um, um, uh, Poseidonus and and um, and a chap called Lydus and and also Philo of Biblos. Um, there's fragments there that the Phoenicians were an extraordinary race of people, you know, um, who who we now know most likely reached the Americas as well. They were such expert seafarers. Yeah. But I can't call it a religion. It, it kind of, um, in a sense, it's to insult them by calling their what they believed in a religion because what's interesting is that it's so scientific. Uh, it's, the only way I can explain it is that it's like a scientific language. They believed that the sun was a noetic light. Now, noetic means kind of knowing. You know, um, when Ed Mitchell came back from the moon, he set up the Institute for Noetic Sciences. Okay, it's a you know we think it's a modern word, but it's actually a very ancient word one used by the Phoenicians or. all. Um, really extraordinary stuff. Now, the Greeks give the, the credit largely of the discovery of the atom to a figure called Democritus, okay, who lived around about 400 BC, okay. But Posidonus turns around and says in a later work that Democritus had it from a Phoenician called Moscos. And the difference between the two is that Democritus said the atom was not indivisible, Moscos who lived probably 1,000 to 1,200 BC, said it was divisible. (laughs) And who was (laughs) right? How how amazing is that? Yeah. 3,000 years ago. And we think we're modern. Right right and again
1: that holographic nature of the universe you can split something in half and it it contains a quarter si- or a half size of of the whole and keep splitting yeah. it keep splitting
2: it and it it'll resemble yeah. the whole even still but well that's um, what i think the you going back to our ghostly lady yeah the recording that was held in the table i think was holographic right so i have this idea that if we were able to utilize that technology to put more things under pressure to elicit the memory, then you've got history in three dimensions and four dimensions, even.
1: It's like, yeah, it's like stepping into a, a time machine of, of learning. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the possibility is so huge, you know? Yeah. Now, when it comes to certain hieroglyphics, we've seen people interpret them in a number of different ways one that really stands out to me is they they point at one that sort of looks like an electricity uh line with like a bulb shape and they say look see the egyptians had electricity Mm. have you found any examples of hieroglyphs that point to you know corroborate your research showing that these buildings had an acoustic resonance that they were aware of
2: Uh, Sir William Siemens went to the top of the Great Pyramid in the uh, mid to late 1800s. And um, he noticed a certain property that uh, was present at the top of it. So he took a bottle with him, an empty bottle, and wrapped it with a a piece of damp paper, okay, lifted it above his head, and it turned into a light bulb, okay, because the static electricity from the pyramid, re-your last question, you know, the dowsing. Is, is immense, you know? So electricity. Now, it's interesting because the word el is the Phoenician word for God. So electric is a Phoenician word. Okay? Mm-hmm. The Greeks have a famous lady, everybody knows the name, Electra. Mm-hmm. Okay? It's the same thing. Um, they would have sometimes pieces of amber they would collect, and they, they called it Electrum. Because it held a static charge. You could rub two pieces of quartz together and light shines. So electricity is not a phenomenon that's modern. Our use of it in the way we use it is modern definitely. But in terms of whether they used it in terms of you know, having power sockets and all of that, I doubt very much they used it in that sense. but however, you know, I might be proved wrong. I, I suspect they they knew, how to bring about a small current charge, you know, because we know that uh, with the Baghdad battery, for instance, which takes back, I think, to about uh, 800 to 1,000 BC, we know that they were using lemon juice, uh, which has a 10-volt charge to actually um, 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 gild certain artifacts with gold or silver, you see, my own family are silversmiths and goldsmiths over here in the UK. We've been, we've been famous for that for, for the past couple of hundred years or so. <clears throat> Elkington Silver is uh, very famous worldwide. And um, the discovery of, uh, of electroplating came via Sir Henry Austin Mayard, who discovered the Baghdad battery with its 10-volt charge from citric acid. Mm-hmm. You see? <clears throat> right. So again, you use the word electricity. The etymology is Phoenician, mm. the word "el," and of course "el" is the oldest name for God in the Bible. Mm, right.
1: Now, even the word phonetics, which is what we're talking about here, is that comes from
2: Phoenician, right? I mean, again, you have got the same, you've got a same, you've got a link there, definitely. Phonetic, phonetics coming from the the, the Greek "phonos," meaning literally sound. Okay. Wow. So, so again, it's in words. Yeah. Words are our, our, our archaeology. Yeah. yeah, And and how much of
1: this have you seen across cultures? Because obviously we know that ma and pa are universal sounds across many different languages. Infants just naturally make these noises in reference to their mother and father. But does it go further than that? Have you seen any examples of like, let's say, for instance, the word sound being uh, replicated across different languages with a similar
2: sound? We have we have definitely have words running throughout the, the whole of civilizations wherever they are, but the most profound example is in the legend of the hero. Okay, the hero basically has the same story: born of a virgin, and of a mysterious father god. Okay, uh, performs miracles and wonders as a child, and then you know goes on to become a healer. And then is um, um, you know uh, subjected then to 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 a trial, and crucified, and rises from death on the third day. Okay, most famous example of this, of course, is Jesus, who we call Jesus Christ. But we have um, names of 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 the same variation throughout history, going right the way back in uh, Japan, twelve hundred BC. We've got a, a hero god called Jizu, J I Z U. As I've said, in Celtic, we've got Isus, who goes back to pre-Roman times. Um, you've got uh, various names of Jesus throughout the whole of Africa, going back thousands of years. Isa, Esau, Isugute, etc., you know. Um, and, of course, in, in Mexico, you've got Quetzalcoatl, you see, which is another form of, he's called Itza, okay? It's a hardened version of Isa, which, of course, is the Middle Eastern name for Jesus. So it's always the same variation on the same form, the same name. And of course, the the mother goddess is always called Mary. You know, there are so many instances of that name across the planet, right right through history, that you think, ah, there has to have been an original faith. Whether we call it a religion or not, I don't know, because it was obviously very, you know, it's, it's knowledge based on science. Science literally is a Latin word meaning knowledge.
1: Let let me tell you this now. So I just learned this last week. The The first pagan, we'll call it pagan ritual in recorded history in New England was at Marymount in Massachusetts. And uh, he, he put the maypole up and got the indigenous people and traded guns for women. And, and this caused a, a whole lot of trouble for the establishment, but it was sort of like the the moment where the playing field was leveled, and the red man had a chance to you know share the guns with his his brothers and 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 finally they weren't being you know trampled on because they were sort of uh able to fight back, but yeah, it's interesting that Marymount was the place where that all took took place, yeah
2: absolutely, yeah, and you'll find examples of this all over the world and right throughout history. It's quite interesting, I'm still chronicling them, you know so. Yeah. Uh, might well be in about uh, 20 years time i update the book and rewrite it with even greater detail in that regard you know it's it's really it's really interesting stuff it's a it's a fairly um you know intense work i've I, i've thrown a lot of information into it so um you know there there is a a lot i wanted to kind of really underscore and underline every single point in it you know but I think we've covered largely most of of what's in it in a general sense, you know. Wonderful. Um, But I I think that um, when people read the book, they should also listen to some really good, you know, music when they're, you know, looking at it. Because the music will help to put them in the right frame of brainwave rhythm to kind of, Help to soak up more of the inf- information, and therefore make it less of an intense experience. Right. Yeah. Well, and on that point, I've
1: heard some people, like, um, oh, what's his name, Mark Devlin, who's done some research on the the difference of Hertz in modern music and how they've sort of yeah. shifted it to four hundred and forty Hertz as opposed to four thirty two. Yeah. What what is this all about? Should people be seeking out four thirty two hertz music, or are they fine listening to the what the standard tune is?
2: If you play Beethoven's Fifth at four forty as opposed to four three two, it's a completely different piece of music. Um, it's almost, to my mind, um, sometimes I kind of I listen to a lot of classical music, you know, um, and sometimes you kind of get the the sense that the the conductor just wants it to be over and done with pretty quickly it's like sort of, oh, let's get this done, you know. So they're playing in the Hall of the Mountain King and whereas it should be sort of two and a half minutes long, he's over in about 50 seconds, you know. It's like, hey, let's get the hell out of here, you know. And you kind of think, it's really annoying because that's not what the original composer wanted. And furthermore, I think the speeding up of music, which is more or less, you know, modern popular music is, is very fast by comparison. So it's kind of like classical music's being forced to catch up but classical music's all about a state of mind you want to relax you want to kind of slow down you don't want to be sped up you right. know um it's just it, it, i i i think it's i think there's a great deal in the argument here for the slowing down of classical music you know yeah yeah it, and, and it is interesting to think about how condensed
1: and fast-paced our music is i mean in comparison to classical music 10 to 20 to 30 minutes nowadays on the radio it's two minutes a song ad break another two minutes a song you don't even hear the whole song if you're listening on the radio
2: the it's a terrible modern disease that we're totally unable to concentrate for longer than a few seconds it seems to me you know and yet the slowness of music the effect of resonance upon the brain can lead you into such a state you can concentrate for hours on end. You just have to give yourself a chance. Mm. There's there's too much in the world that's too interesting and distracting. And we've got to learn the discipline to be able to switch off and say, no, today I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to it. Right. But aid yourself. Aid yourself by by playing good, wholesome old music not popular modern music i'm not saying popular modern music is 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 bad all i'm saying is if you want to get something done you want to read a book or you want to think about something you need the appropriate music to help you along the pathway you know
1: absolutely
2: yeah um, and it really does help actually it helps hugely oh yeah uh, you know and if you find dissonance at home in your home environment your kids are playing up and everybody's at edge with each other Just put some Mozart on and uh, watch the difference, you know? Yeah, i got to try that in this house. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. yeah, uh, You know, can you imagine a world without music? No. Certainly wouldn't want to. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly, you know? So, uh, yeah, what can I say? Now, you know... When
1: it comes to to modern music, we're certainly in agreement. But what about modern architecture? Are there any examples of of modern structures that take harken back to these old concepts, like the Sydney Opera House, for example, or or
2: something on, on that magnitude? It's a good question, actually, because I'm still stuck in the past. I haven't actually been able to sort of investigate too much the uh, mm. the modern. Um, I find the modern sometimes to be quite distracting in that sense. But um, I mean, thanks to the work of the late architect, Keith Critchlow, who wrote wrote a series of wonderful books, um, the best one of which was Time Stands Still, which came out about 30, 40 years ago. Um, He worked together with our then Prince of Wales, now our new King Charles III, to set up an organization called the Temenos Foundation which in, reinvestigated the whole idea of sacred architecture and its role in helping society and civilization to calm down, to be at one, to be at peace with itself. And it's having a profound effect. I'm really it's glad fascinating. about do you Fascinating. Yeah, do you think yeah. that the, the new king has an interest in this? Uh, maybe Oh, massively so. Massively um, so. Yeah. Wow. No, he's a... He's a deeply cultured, uh, educated man who, who, has who, been uh, interested in this for many, many years. Um, a really, really interesting man, I have to say. Wow. well worth um, taking his advice on, you know, on these things because he studied it very deeply. Um, and Keith Critchlow, who worked with with the King, um, you know, was an expert on Chart Cathedral in France and. It's well worth going online to look at some of the the, the little YouTube tips that you've got of Keith, you know, talking about shards and its uh, properties. It's very, very interesting stuff. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I have a few
1: books on that specific cathedral, and it's, it's fascinating. I want to yeah. maybe do a whole episode on that eventually, but wow. Mr. Elkington, this has been really truly an honor speaking with you. You know, on the point of modern distractions, I'm usually fiddling with things over here to, to keep focused. And this conversation just went by like a breeze. You you really know what you're talking about. And and I I hope the audience goes out and picks up your book because I, I know they're sure to find so much more than what we've touched on here in this show. But any final thoughts for our, our modern audience? I mean, who knows how long this show will be around. It could be, you know, 200 years in the future that someone listens to this. But for us here in the year 2022, any words of advice for for people listening, maybe people who are interested in, in connecting with their primitive roots? Yeah,
2: I, I think that the best thing is when you go to the sacred sites, and I'm, you know, I'm not a hippie. But take your shoes and socks off, get in touch with the ground, and just just you know, just look around you, breathe deeply, get into the whole thing. You might be skeptical, you don't have to be a believer and certainly not religious, um, but just kind of soak it all up, allow allow your body to absorb everything around you, become at one with your environment, and then you'll be amazed at the effect it will have upon you and and furthermore, If you can't sing, you know, I've got a voice, it's so bad that birds will drop dead out of the sky if I began to sing. So instead, just keep laughing. You know, humor (laughs) is where two opposites meet, and in the overlap is the realization. Right. Okay. So just keep laughing.
1: Right, right. And you do have your your black belt in the Irish martial art of humor. I've gotten to (laughs) know that. (laughs) Oh, Thank you so much for for joining me here. And I do hope to have you back on. A little tease for the audience. Mr. Elkington is working on some really uh, smashing stuff over there. Uh, And I don't know if we could take the lid off it just yet, but... Uh, maybe next year or or the year after we'll have them on to discuss it because it is going to be uh, smashing when the world finds out about uh, what we discussed before we started recording Um, but wow thank you so much for being here and for everyone tuning in immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now Alright, and that is our conversation with David Elkington. The book is The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound. And yeah, that was a really neat conversation. He's a really bright, fun guy to talk to. Obviously very intelligent. And uh, I gotta give a shout out to my friend Roman. Uh, He inspired me to look into this topic and... David Elkington was the first author I found on the topic, so maybe look forward to an episode of the Rising from the Ashes podcast with David Elkington, who knows, uh, shout out to them, we just had Dan Danunaki, the other co-host from that show, on the podcast uh, last episode, episode 216, and yeah, hitting the... September month strong, here we are in October The two year anniversary of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast is this Wednesday That's October 5th, 2022 We started with our first episode, October 5th, 2020 And uh, yeah, it's really cool to be less than 50,000 downloads away from a million downloads total And we haven't even gotten to two years yet. So a million people have, or the show has been played a million times. So I don't know how many people that is, but shout out to every single one of you who have tuned in. Thank you for helping support this show and my life and this dream of educating myself while helping others learn. And also finding common ground with all sorts of people who For lack of a better word, have been uh, exiled to some degree. Some are are on the more moderate spectrum of that, and others are on the more extreme spectrum of that. Uh, We will be speaking with someone who's on the extreme side of that spectrum uh, next episode, this Wednesday. So stick around, and uh, if you can't wait, sign up on the Patreon right now, and you'll get that episode immediately we put all of the shows on patreon early i also put the videos up there and the videos go up early on rockfin as well so sign up support the show and you get some bonus content you get early releases of the normal episodes you get the illuminati confirmed patreon only show and obviously illuminati confirmed isn't the only show i do If you've been here for a while, you know I also do a show with Michael Wan called Your Handbook for the Apocalypse. You can find that uh, just by searching Susquehanna Alchemy. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you'll find the RSS feed, and the show is there. There's also another show in there called From the 40th Parallel, where Ross Ben and Mike Wan talk. And you get both of those shows in one podcast feed. Uh, Also... I have a new show that's available on YouTube. It's also available wherever you listen to podcasts. It's called Esoteric America, where we speak with whoever would like to join us on the show. So don't be shy. Don't be bashful. Come on down and tell us what you found about your local area. Our goal is to learn, learn, learn as much as we can about as many places as we can. And we try to focus town by town, city by city, We've even done uh, larger regions like the Inland Empire. It's just kind of like a county or a region uh, out there in California. I don't know if that's a, a city. I, maybe I'm wrong. But either way, we, uh, we're we not too strict on that. So if you live somewhere cool, let us know. Tell us what you have found and uh, join us on the show for a presentation about it. That is Esoteric America. Again, you can find that on YouTube and the early Release Monday nights, it comes out on Rockfin You get it for free Tuesday uh, night, it comes out It premieres on my YouTube channel My family thinks I'm crazy On YouTube, search that, follow us, support us on YouTube And uh, yeah, that's about it for today's episode Thank you for everybody who's been helping out Signing up for the Synchro Wisdom Dialogue uh, I might have to put a limit on how many I do a month, but uh, sign up while you still can for a Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. You can talk to me about whatever you'd like. Maybe get advice about podcasting, tell me a strange story, and it all goes on the Patreon. You get a copy sent to you, uh, and if it's really incredible stuff, it'll be featured right here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast feed wherever you are whether it's apple spotify podcast attic podverse whatever make sure you are giving us a five star rating and a review positive review if you like the show wherever you're listening it really helps new people find the show and uh we really appreciate that and david elkington of course would appreciate if you pick up his book the ancient language Of Sacred Sound Definitely a must have If you're interested in a lot of the topics We've covered and will continue to cover On this show If you haven't noticed This is uh, definitely an interest of mine Ancient mysteries, earth energies And so on and so forth So The My Family Thinks I'm Crazy Podcast Episode 217 rocking it into the future we've got episode 218 with a really awesome returning guest super controversial i know everyone's gonna love it so until then right whatever that means and enjoy the moment wherever you are in the now peace
0: Strip, terrestrial, trying to stay human in a cesspool of professionals. But I confess too much off of the tongue. All my aunties and my uncles shield the ears of the young. Hobby singing shit and they don't know where it's coming from. And like a hundred years, we went Zar Bomber guns. Check the facts, check the Fed, check the stars. Stanley mine was murdered for a water fuel cell car. They each stay on, you can stick with your own ways. But eat the rich and drink the motherfucking Kool Aid. And I can see the red on your lip stain. White skin, blue collops, you American made. Fuck it. And keep your blood so temporative And run the soul off the moon landed narrative Yeah My girl thinks that I'm embarrassing My folks think I'm nuts But never question the parenting Stuck in bed so my boss thinks I'm lazy Connecting dots But it's all kinda hazy I'm on morning in the net feeling like I'm dead Tracy My Pac thinks I'm un-American is shady Yeah I'm feeling unhinged baby Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily You could tell me that the president's an AV and it wouldn't phase me My family thinks I'm crazy my family thinks I'm crazy, baby, baby, baby. You might think that I'm off. In- one too many Netflix docs on the weekends But check the budget for a military defense Tell me we ain't scared of something not within reason Steel beams, another 1492 And 9-11 was the red, white, and blue And you be lit off the floor, I ain't got a clue All your dreams just shit on the Rockefeller shoes Don't believe a damn thing a politician ever said Ain't one brick left to gold up in the Fed They still got bricks of cocaine to make crap Oxy's killing the working class, FDA's whack. Talking like this got Ken talking behind backs. Too much to unpack, so they talk smack. And I'm just trying to converse with my clan, but it ain't fan. So I'm here setting up Ken. Stuck in bed, so my boss thinks I'm lazy. Connecting dots, but it's all kind of hazy. Good morning on the internet, feeling like I'm Dick Tracy. My pack thinks I'm un-American and shady. Yeah, I'm feeling unhinged lately. Encounters of the fifth kind on the daily. You could tell me that the president's an alien. It wouldn't face me. My family thinks I'm crazy. Baby, baby, baby. My family thinks I'm crazy. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Just maybe. Stuck your pants on my boss, that's lazy. Maybe. And that's what it's all coming crazy I'm on giving that feeling like I'm baby, Dick Tracy My dad thinks I'm marriage baby, the marriage and it's shady I'm baby, feeling unhinged lately The counters are the family fifth family kind on the table so You can tell me baby, that the president's baby, an atheist baby, And it wouldn't faze me baby, My family baby. thinks I'm crazy Yeah, I think one thing I've learned is You can't rule anything out So, you know, maybe I...